Get autographed copies of New York Times bestselling author Cynthia Bryan's books at www.starstyleradio.com. Get inspired and motivated to be your best self with Be The Star You Are, 99 Gifts, and Be The Star You Are for Teens. Buy cases at a deep discount to give away as gifts and premiums. Visit www.starstyleradio.com or call 925-377-STAR. 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 Do you have a plan for your life? Do you know where you want to go? Are you looking to be happier, healthier, and wealthier while having more fun every day? Meet our healthy living coaches, Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany, as they engage in energetic exchanges with success experts, bringing you research, innovation, strategies, and techniques to strengthen your business and personal navigational skills for ultimate achievement. Be inspired, motivated, encouraged, and empowered. Lend us your ears right here on Star Style. Be the star you are. The party starts now. Well, I'm sure everybody thinks, why party at 4 o'clock? But why not party at every hour? Hello, Power Partners. Welcome to our informational playground. This is Star Style. Be the star you are. Brought to the airwaves under the auspices of Be the Star You Are 501c3 Charity. We're your hosts. I'm Cynthia Bryan. And I'm Heather Brittany. And we are, you are listening to us live on the Voice America Network. We're coming to you on the Empowerment Channel. We have a great show for you for today, but the first, I want to give the miracle moment. And it is sponsored by Be The Star You Are Charity. The Pear Festival will be coming up in September. So if you're interested in being a sponsor, we have an event coordinator, but you can contact me, Cynthia, at CynthiaBryan.com. And this is from Albert Einstein. Life is like riding a bicycle. You To keep your balance, you just have to keep moving. And I, it's kind of a very fitting miracle moment, Heather, for today. And I mean, I didn't choose it in the last couple of days. I I put this together like two weeks ago. But it says to keep your balance, you must keep moving. Well, with my uh, back injuries, I keep feeling like motion is lotion and I want to keep moving. But um, yesterday I kept moving and uh, fell off a ladder and broke my toe. So... <laughs> I guess I wasn't in balance. <laughs> I oh, literally was goodness. hanging by my toe. But you know what? My Toes toe saved me. Thank- you can't do anything for them. I know. That's the problem is that there's really nothing you can do but just kind of get through it. I, You know what's the hardest thing is when you go to sleep at night and you want to put like a sheet or a blanket. You can't have anything touch your toe. I mean, it just goes like, oh. But thank oh. goodness, you know, it's. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I, I maybe I become a better singer um, if I have more toes like this. But um, if good thing it's summer because I can just go barefoot. Number one, and if I have, I can't really even wear flip flops because my toe oh, is so swollen and it can't. Only just crack a little toe and oh, just and it's crazy how something so teeny can cause so much pain. It, it is really, 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 really crazy. But anyway, this too shall pass. And obviously, um, I was trying to keep my balance, but it just wasn't right. 
So for today, we have a really fun uh, show, as we always do, with lots of different topics. But coming right up is over the past 20 months or so, there's been this global movement to be more open about biological processes that for centuries have been seen as the curse. And, you know, you've probably heard of the red tent and all kinds of things. So Heather's going to be talking about the repeal of the tampon tax in health matters. And that in segment two, we're going to talk about the rising population and how people, uh, what they're looking for as far as living conditions. And as they age, how people would like to age in place or they'd like to live in their homes and not go somewhere else. So we're actually going to look at some design options and how to be successfully design your house so that, you know, when you start, <laughs> like me, breaking your t- can't move. Uh, that you're going to be able to stay there. And then finally, are you a blamer and a complainer? Because if so, it's time for an attitude adjustment. And I'm going to show you ways to find the positives and the negatives and change your inner and outer dialogue. So that not only are you feeling better, but everybody around you is going to like you just a little bit more and want to maybe be with you. (laughs) So Heather, let's get right to your health matters because I found this very, very interesting. I know if you look uh, throughout history, the menstrual period or any biological process that happens in the human body has always been so taboo. It's like so puritanical. It's, it's as if it's not natural. So what is this tampon tax? What does it mean? What is the, you know, repealing it mean? Is it good for us? Does it mean that we're becoming more open? Yeah. So if you're unaware, this, it sounds pretty crazy about a tampon tax to begin with. Um, you know, there's so many mystery little taxes that we always think, but to think why tax uh, tampons? And it's actually, excuse me, it's actually considered um, a luxury good, so it's a luxury tax. And I don't know about you, but if you were to ask any woman, I don't think they would ever consider a period uh, or the use of maxi pads and tampons a luxury. And this tampon I agree tax, with you. And you know why they call, I mean, you know why that's why it used to be called being on the rag? You know, the slam, are you on the rag? It was yeah. because... Like in your grandmother's day, there were no such things as maxi pads or any kind of feminine hygiene things. You used rags, old rags, and you had to wash them out. So that's really sad that they taxed yeah, it. Yeah, and you know, and there's been there's been archaeological proof that um, women have been making that there's been you know. Co- co- tampons and pads throughout history, not as what we know of them today. Um, that sort of the actual, you know, tampon insertion in the plastic containers, all those kinds of things, that really the first kind of uh, model types that didn't start to exist until the late 30s um, into the early 40s. But, you know, before, I mean, they found things that would be, you know, paper and, as you said, rags, all these kinds of things. So, as you say, it doesn't really seem like a luxurious thing for people. And um, because it's not considered considered uh, a necessity, and things, certain things that are covered by health insurance sometimes are considered, you know, uh, necessities, medicines, uh, certain products, and, and 
Um, things such as condoms, lubricants, those a lot of times have state funding uh, taxes or excuse me, state funding towards to provide to low income at no cost or low cost. Um, Planned Parenthood was a you know for things of getting birth control covered, and now we've had all these great things uh, listed or, or kind of revamped in the last few years of saying what things are necessities and beyond. I think so much of it within the United States has really been um, sort of religious views towards things of getting sexuality. There's just sort of been this uncomfortableness towards uh, feminine hygiene. I mean, you see if if a woman's ever had to send, you know, her boyfriend or husband or whatever to get that, you know, if that's the only thing they need to get from the grocery store, they will make sure that grocery thing is filled with everything else that could, you know, possible to hide that thing or that seems really manly that to show that, you know, I don't know why I have that. But we have to face it. Like, this is something that nearly it's everyone... Natural. Yeah, it's natural. We'll experience and we have to take that shame out of it. it. And, you know, to think that, you know, if you said there used to be the red tent, there used to be women, the curse, that you know, we have all these horrible names for it. And um, which, you know, said it's not because men probably don't see it. It's not a luxury. So um, actually in this past year, uh, there's been this big movement. Uh, seem to eliminate this tax and slowly, uh, little, uh, sort of state by state, uh, various states have started to eliminate. There's so many ridiculous laws and taxes we've had on the books for so long, um, that people almost kind of don't know that these exist. And, uh, New York was the first to kind of get this going back in May. And, uh, they're trying to, you know, have tampons and pads more equally distributed, um, and at no cost for women. And it sounds silly, but it will be a savings close to about $500 um, in a lifetime for, uh, for women, or at least, um, you know, over a lifetime, but I honestly feel like things could, could cost more, um, which doesn't may not seem like that much, but it really is something that adds up over time. And, I think it would and, cost uh, more, Heather. It, I mean, does sorry, it, what? Think it's, it seems like it would cost more. I mean, they're, more, they're pretty expensive. And if you think of yeah. having to buy things... Uh, Every month from yeah, the time well, maybe I you're twelve you it, to the time you're fifty. You know, I I kind of when I saw it, I think I think that's more of in a five year span. I think it would probably cost. Um, I think uh, it'd probably be about a hundred dollars a year. So over a lifetime, that could be thousands and thousands of dollars. Because um, you think if a if a box is ten dollars or you know ten tampons or twenty tampons or I guess they're not a dollar each. So maybe there's maybe there's about thirty in there. So. You know, I guess it breaks down um, probably, I would say, that, you know, costing them $50 a year. Still, hundreds, I think, much money is meant to be saved on this. And it's something that it is a necessity. And um, there's actually a campaign um, that was locked. If you go to uh, No Shame Period, uh, No Shame Period, just No Shame Period, uh, dot org, um, it's this a new initiative. It's been this uh, nonprofit, and it, it sounds... You know, something you would almost think, God, who, how did someone think to come up with this? Um, but it really is life-changing. And the, the truth is that in third-world countries, in, in Africa, Malaysia, um, women that, you know, have, that is considered a luxury to have that. It's not that it's a joy. It's that people can't afford this. They don't have access to it. Um, and for many young women... Uh, when they're on their period, that could mean that they can't go to school. They can't. They don't have things uh, because you know their clothing will be ruined. They'll feel embarrassed. This is something you know. All those kinds of things that we don't even think about of what that would cause. And so, um, it really affects women's education in areas, of course, that education is so sparse. 
um, women, you know, to think that just to not have access to um, sanitation pads and tampons uh, could really kind of change the whole course of your life in a negative way. So um, what this initiative, what this uh, nonprofit is, is to try to get as many of these sort of period packs to these young women, and they go there, and for about $12, you can supply a young girl with about three years of supply. And uh, that just thinks 12, for $12, which $12 over there can be an astronomically large um, amount of money. So, um, so things like that, you know, that I think in the United States, uh, though it's not a luxury, we, um, we don't view these things as something that could really change our life. I wasn't able to get, you know, tampons. We don't think of that as that it could really mean someone could not be able to get a job, to go to school, to participate in things and miss out on life. And, Heather, and not- so, but the repealing of the tax is, that's a tax that's here, Correct. Here in the United States, yes, yes, of course. That's original, and it's you know state by it's state by yes, it's it's something that exists, and but it's state by set, state by state that are repealing this tax. I don't, um, I'm actually unfamiliar with California's state tax regarding that, but New York um, was the first to vote to eliminate it, and then Illinois took place, and then the crazy thing, however, is this tax exists globally. That um, earlier this year. Um, uh, oh goodness! Um, the United Kingdom uh, proposed to uh, find a resolution for this, um, as well as uh, Australia did too. And to think you would—I think normally you don't even think that these exist over there. I think I was just when I found out about this, I was just so amazed that we have the taxes. This is seemed as a luxury item, and to think right. that, I have again, no idea that we even have tax either. I mean, and. Until you're doing this show, I had no idea that there was a tax on it. Now, the one thing I was wondering, the tax was just going to the government or is going to the government for whatever the government wants. It's not going to help women in, um, you know, in third world countries or women in poverty here in the United States. Is that correct? Uh, to the best of my knowledge, no. Uh, there's, I, I don't know any of what the funding exactly, what the tax is actually going towards. Most likely, as yeah, all so they go, they go towards the state to work on, you know, repairs towards things. Unless things have been allotted as this state, this tax is implemented for this reason, um, with these funds being vested towards this particular uh, cause, it, you know, if, so if there was. Um, a tax, for example, on sodas and because of the high sugar, which New York actually does have that. That they've similar to a cigarette tax. It's not as high, but they've uh, they have made a tax towards sugary uh, sodas. Um, but Berkeley, with that said, I, Berkeley did the same thing. You know, I think Berkeley, did. California, is that they but have a tax the money, on all these sugary things, so that it helps kids in the whole ob- obesity thing. Uh, San Francisco tried, but it didn't pass in San Francisco, but it probably would the next time around. You know, some of these, some of them are really good taxes, you know, the taxes on tobacco and, you know, taxes on sugary drinks. I mean, it might hurt the investors, but it may help the population. Yeah, well, the thing towards that is that it's supposed to be this movement. The same with that there are cigarette taxes is that the thought is, which doesn't, always work um, because we see these still are still an issue. But the thought of it is increasing the price, increasing this tax, making, you know, the pack of cigarettes $4, but the tax $5 on it, you know, crazy things, things that, you know, one a pack of cigarettes ends up being nearly $10. Um, that's supposed to deter people saying, you know, it costs so much money. Instead, you know, 
cues that not to smoke or are, you know, trying to, you know, go towards the gums, the things that can help you get off this. Um, but the case is if people want to, they will, and they will spend the money to, um, to get that. And that same, you know, goes towards the sodas. That it's hopefully it's trying to show people that, you know, at this cost there's um, other options that are healthier for you um, that at less of a cost. But with this um, luxury tax that we know it isn't a luxury, but that's how, you know, it was viewed that people, I think, probably coming from um, this, this tax is very, very old. Um, so probably coming from uh, potentially, you know, World War War things after having uh, such a decline in the economy, um, you know, people using anything for everything that it could be seen as a luxury. Uh, but it's, you know, it's just silly um, to think that it is. And there should be, you know, these initiatives now of trying to get these things covered by insurance, too. Of, uh, it seems such a minimal cost for us, I feel, but... The truth is there are, you know, all these issues in third world countries that, you know, maintaining a normal lifestyle because of your period um, pretty much doesn't exist because sanitary uh, options for you don't exist. And um, that, you know, can be... Well, I remember reading, I, I mean, I remember reading about some, um, you know, customs in the Middle East and, uh, and of, of course, and in India. And uh, I'm sure things are changing, uh, but how sad it was is that when a woman uh, started her period, she was actually um, sent away. She was banned from going outside, banned from seeing anybody. It was like she had to be, that's why, you know, that whole idea of the red tent. Um, in some cultures, it would be any women in the village who were on their period, they would all be in one in one tent, and they weren't allowed to go out as if it was a disease. So when I heard about this luxury tax, I couldn't, I just couldn't believe my ears that it was actually at one point considered, as you said, um, a luxury. Uh, no woman would say that, that it would, would be a luxury. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, exactly. It's just, it's crazy in that way. And then it, what's, What's even crazier to me is to think that the financial cost of things, that it can also be, um, that, that really just purchasing these things could hamper to a woman's life. And as I said, that over in third world countries, that it really is an issue that um, it can, it's a, it's a, a result um, actually of higher and higher dropout rates a young, um, among young women because it prevents them from going to school. I mean, that could be anywhere from, you know, three to ten days out of the month. And we know as, as a school, if someone attending school, how crucial those days of school are, what you learn in a day out of a month. Um, so those things, you know, it's hard to ever catch up and to think that a period caused that. And for any woman, you know, it's, it's a part of puberty. It's part of right of passage of your life. It's natural. It's scientific. And um, to think that, you know, financial costs could be causing these burdens. And this exists, you know, in the United States. Well, I think, think too, Heather, I think that a lot of, I mean, I don't want to say a lot, but I think that sometimes, especially in the past, there was a religious uh, component that you touched on earlier to the idea of um, not sanitary napkins, but tampons themselves. I do remember when I was young um, being told that you, you know, you could never use a tampon until after you were married, which, you know, when you're young, you don't really understand what that meant. And what it was is that it, they were considering a tampon being like a sexual device. <laughs> 
So. Yeah, no. I, if you it, can imagine. Is, and that's, you know, and that's, so it was going uh, to one of the ruin your virginity if that, you used to. Is that there's been so much misinformation, and that really starts with parents, I think, too, that talk. I mean, we just talk about how you need to start at such a young age talking about sexuality and talking about things at age-appropriate things because so many adults um, who now have parents are uncomfortable. It means that they must have those uncomforts to themselves because they're, they're lacking to give their children information, and that just further causes these, these crazy thoughts. I mean, if you get a group of girls together that tell them things that they thought or they were told, and I know especially coming from your generation, your moms, um, that, that, that was, people just don't talk about that stuff. And just to think, you know, the crazy, the crazy things that people had gone through of, of hearing these stories, to think that a tampon um, is equal to a breaking of the hymen or, or that you, people say that you lose your virginity from. It's like that's a piece of cotton. That's basically a cotton ball. Are you serious? So, I mean, it means that people, they just didn't have their, they are ignorant or don't <laughs> but have But see, it's interesting how over the years, uh, mores change, mores, morals, concepts. And it is crucial that everybody keeps talking about everything, right? Because if you don't talk about stuff, then nobody knows. So this is fascinating to me that there even was a tampon tax. I mean, it, it just seems like I can't even believe that certainly there, there was. slowly getting the repeal. Yeah. Well, I just can't believe it. And I just think that I'm so glad that whoever started working to get this going did it because... It is definitely not a luxury. Go ahead and tax, you know, jewelry and and uh, furs and fancy designer clothes if you want, but don't tax the necessities of men or women because uh, it's not only in our country, but as you said, all over the world, it can make a difference between an educated person and somebody who's successful or somebody who lives in poverty their whole life. So yeah. very interesting. Do you want to wind it up? Yeah, most definitely. In the last few years, there's been this even more movement of talking about it, of that it's not shameful, that it's science, it's part of everything. It's not something to be embarrassed about. And the first thing it starts with is empowering young girls before puberty and making it seem like this is just something everyone goes through and then making it accessible to everyone. So there's lots of movements going on. So you can check out uh, noshame.org as well as you can use hashtags such as periods are not an insult and start your own kind of conversation about it of getting people to put forward this idea that uh, periods are not an insult and they're nothing to be shamed for and this kind of access should be available to every woman out there um, at no cost because it is a medical necessity in my view. So to check out more things and to get ready for that pair festival, check out org as well as starcellradio.com. Well, good, good job. I agree with you and I'm glad you gave out those websites. So when we come back from break, we're actually going to change the subject. We're going to kind of go into the design world and talk about designing for longevity. What are some of the things that really will help you be able to stay in the home of your dreams as long as you want? I'm Cynthia Bryan. And I'm Heather Brittany. And you've been listening to Star Style, Be the Star You Are. We're coming to you live on the Voice American Network. This is the Empowerment Channel, and I will be right back, and we will go into successful design. Don't go away. The star you are, be the star you are. 
Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Are you seeking a Dynamo speaker for your meeting, conference, or organization? Internationally recognized keynote speaker and New York Times bestselling author and lifestyle coach, Cynthia Bryan, will bring her energetic expertise, passionate professionalism, and ebullient personality to your event. Hailed as an expert in lifestyle, women's issues, self-help, personal balance, leadership, media, gardening, and interior design topics, Cynthia Bryan is a popular empowerment keynote speaker around the world. Lecturing to audiences of 100 to 5,000. For rates and bookings, call 925-377-STAR. 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 And visit www.cynthiabryan.com. When you want the best, book Cynthia Bryan. www.cynthiabryan.com. This business of show business is calling out to me. Get started acting or modeling with a consultation from media coach extraordinaire Cynthia Bryan, who has guided entertainment careers for over two decades. Call 925-377-STAR or visit www.cynthiabryan.com. Pick up a copy of her award-winning book, The Business of Show Business, and start living your dreams today. Call 925-377-STAR. 925-377-STAR. It's power time on Star Style. Be the star you are with your passion, purpose, and possibility producer, Cynthia Bryan. Now, back to the power party. This business of show business is calling out to me. Well, we are uh, switching gears here, and we're going to talk about designing for longevity. My name is Cynthia Bryan, and you are listening to Star Style, Be the Star You Are. We're coming to you live on the Voice America Network, and this is the Empowerment Channel, where we strive every week to inform and educate and entertain and introduce you to new ideas so that you can constantly be thinking and living outside the box and making sure that your life is very, very fulfilling. Well, as most of you probably know from listening to this show for over these years, we've been broadcasting live every week since 1998 on a variety of networks, but we just love Voice America, and we're, we plan on staying with this family as long as they'll have us. And so and from 1998 to now, I mean, it's, it's a really long time. I'm coming up, we're 18 years now. So you probably know that um, I have 25 years in the interior design field, and I'm a professional member of the American Society of Interior Designers. And it's always interested me to start thinking about how longevity plays into design, because when I was younger, as most of us when we're younger, when we're, you know, in our teens, and our 20s, and our early 30s, we don't think about that. Now, I actually designed um, it took me like 10 years to figure out exactly what it was that I wanted to do uh, when I was younger and walked property and built. Uh, I didn't personally build it. I had a contractor build it, but I designed my house and then I did do all of the interior design work and and almost all of the finishes myself, you know, including doing upholstery and window treatments and all of this thing. But one thing I really never considered all these years ago when I was building the house was how to design for longevity. I always thought, you know, of being just super healthy and super strong and super athletic. So, you know, who starts, who thinks about doing grab bars and 
stairs and all these things. But interior designers have a really big role to play because our nation is undergoing the biggest demographic shift since post-World War II baby boom. And that, um, that realization starts really hitting home when you realize that health, wellness, and longevity depend on many factors, including the physical environment, environment where you live and the socialization that surrounds you. So people can live longer, healthier lives when their living environment encourages them to be active and interactive with others. I mean, it doesn't matter what their age or their level of physical ability because designing for longevity is part of the solution for an aging world. So we need to talk about it. And the American Society of Interior Designers did a really great article, which I'm going to pull a few of the key uh, thoughts from because I really liked it. It's never before in human history have so many people lived for so long, yet most of the existing built environments were designed for healthy, active, young, midlife adults. Like I was just saying, I mean, I was, you know, just in my 30s, so that's a, it's like that's what I designed for. Um, but we really have a huge task ahead of us to redesign these spaces and support people as they age, as well as we have to envision how we should be building for the future because people everywhere are talking about aging in place and when we think of that we usually think of single family homes in suburbs right but like New York's age-friendly you know New York City initiative is pointing out that many elderly Americans do live in cities or are contemplating moving from suburbs to city because what, then it's easier for them to get around without cars, there's more people there, all of that. So this puts a lot of pressure on city, city governments and urban planners because they have to ensure that the housing, the streets, the transportation, the public spaces are all accessible. And to a greater, uh, greater need, they have to be safe for older citizens. So health issues really affect the quality of life as we age. So can the loss of family, I mean, when you have somebody die, it really affects you. And when that happens, the impact of loneliness on health, it's equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So when you're lonely and you're really sad, that is really bad for your body. The happiest human beings have six to seven hours of socialization a day. So it's critical that people have made prisoners of poor design and so that they have to be, you know, like prisoners in their home or um, places of work. We have to ensure that the spaces are accessible and supportive and encourage physical and social activity. Now, obviously, keeping working is a really good thing. Uh, no matter what you're doing, especially if you're working around people because of what they were saying about um, uh, this, uh, a doctor who had done a lot of studies on aging is talking about having those socializations. So addressing all these issues is going to require a lot of cooperation and coordination between governments and builders and planners and advocates for the elderly and communities in general. And of course, all those who are engaged in remodeling and renovation industry, you know, like contractors. And the interior designers have a real major contribution because whether they're doing a, a remodel or a, a, a new space, 
they are probably the best qualified to design and implement the spaces and they can learn to meet the full range of needs for older adults and now and for the future of them, making it not just functional and aesthetically, you know, beautiful, but accessible, healthy, safe, and welcoming to visitors. And another thing that it's really important is to uh, make the place uplifting and, you know, fun, a place that you're going to want to stay in. So designing for longevity is not just about the needs of the elderly. It encumbers uh, the entire life spectrum, emphasizing the importance of health, wellness, and design for everyone in every aspect of our built environment. And through good design, we can probably live longer and healthier lives. And that's something that we all strive for. Now, I was also reading about designing for the cities, as I was saying. And America's over age 50 population is continuing to rise. And the U.S. Census Bureau estimates that the numbers of Americans age 65 and older are going to double between 2010 and 2040. So in 30 years, cities are looking at how they can best serve their aging populations. I mean, double. That is huge. So 9 in 10 adults, uh, when you interview them, they want to age in their homes. There's a trend away from moving to the retirement spots in the South. You know, like people used to move a lot to Palm Springs. They'd move to Arizona. They'd move to Florida. They want to be in a place that's warm. And, you know, they wanted a retirement community. You know, a lot of times where they could be collectively have, you know, entertainment and rec centers and golf and swimming and exercise and visits, you know, to parks and all of that, as well as no gardening uh, to speak of, you know, that every kind of everything will be taking care of them. But it's interesting, it's shifting now. And the shift is actually extending beyond the United States. On a global scale, the World Health Organization predicts that the proportion of people over 60 is going to double from 11% in 2006 to 22% by 2050. That's, again, huge. Tokyo, for example, already has more than 50,000 residents over the age of 100. So Heather and I have done shows on what you need for longevity. We talked about um, uh, the Okinawa study and how people, how many people are living over 100. But 50,000 people in Tokyo alone. What are some of these new thoughts? Well, as populations age, according to many experts in design and health fields, cities are scrambling to keep up with their uh, needs. What they're doing is they're adding 30 years to human life expectancy, but we haven't figured out how to design a world that supports a longer life. And uh, Linda Freed of Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health participated in her New York age-friendly NYC initiative to make America's largest city more amenable to active senior living. And they produced a 51-point plan that ranged from community and civic participation to housing, public spaces, and transportation to health and social services. And if you're interested in that, you can get an expert, uh, I mean an excerpt, um, by just going, you know, online, and it's called Age Friendly NYC. But anyway, what I want to say about it is uh, this this transformed demographic needs a retrofitting. We have to rebuild the environment, and doing so is going to benefit everyone. 
one. It's like America building this infrastructure in the post-World War um War II era, or the interstate, interstate highway system, which was designed with economic growth goals in mind. And it became a basis for living in the 20th century that's created wealth and prosperity. So in the same way, we have to think of design built on this demographic shift and take into account the expanding population of older adults and build that infrastructure accordingly. It's not just that we have more old people that we have to take care of. It's really about saying, how do we design at the micro and macro levels in a way that's going to lead to happiness, growth, prosperity, and create communities that somebody really wants to live in? So the challenge of building age-friendly cities is daunting because of its scope. It requires solutions at the urban planning scale. It uh, demands solutions at the smallest scales of architecture, interior design, and industrial design. And it also has to have both physical and social solutions. So the need for this change is driving the innovation and the collaboration between the public and the private entities as it should. So, for example, the World Economic Forum's Global Agenda Council on Aging focused on how longevity can be an economic driver if the right conditions are met, as has the Age-Friendly Cities Consortium of World um, Metropolises that seek to address the issue. So let's look at cities like New York, Tokyo, Copenhagen. They become leaders, and they can share their common public uh, sector features, and that would be really helpful. There's an ease to walking around a city when you get older, but for an older population, things like having time to cross the roads and walking on services that aren't conducive to slipping become more important. So the public sector is responsible for the timing and the surface texture of road crossings. I mean, think about it is how much longer it takes. If you've ever been anxious at your car and there is an elder person that needs to cross through a crosswalk, you almost want to get out and help them across because sometimes, especially if they're with a cane or a walker or sometimes just by themselves, they're having a little bit of a challenge and they go really slowly. So the private sector has to look at moves like raising retirement age so people can work longer and addressing the physical layout of buildings to be more age-friendly. And that third component, that we see more age-friendly homes and designers looking carefully at the principles of age-friendly design. Uh, Just going back to a personal experience, this past year, as most of you know, I had a flood in my house. I had to remodel really a large portion of it. So I did remodel it in a more age-friendly way because I really do plan on staying in this home. I like it. It's private. You know, it's country. It's uh, fresh air, lots of lots of nature. It's a, it's a lot of work because the garden is so big, but it keeps me busy and it keeps me strong. So for me, it works. It probably wouldn't work for a number of other people. But uh, making it, bringing it up to speed for a building that as you age, you'll be able to age with it was really important. Now, if you're in a high-density city that has many benefits, an architect with the, um, with the New York's Magnuson Architecture and Planning uh, Commission noted, her name is Christine Hunter, that in a city it's going to be more pedestrian-friendly and there's going to be lots of cultural and medical resources because after seniors get 
up driving, suburban and small town settings are isolating. But Hunter believes that despite the benefits of urban life, that can happen in cities too. So even though you think that there's less isolation in the big cities, you can be just as isolated if, if, for example, you're on the 10th floor of a building and the elevators don't work. I mean, you're not going to be able to climb 10, 10 stories. So it's an issue for everywhere, no matter where it is that you live. We really have to be uh, you know, cognizant of how we're going to design it. So what are a few things that you could do to remain in home sweet home? It's really about looking at what you're going to need, how long you're going to be in your home, and putting the structural elements in place when you're still young. So if you are in a home, no matter what age you are, and you really think this is the place you're going to stay, you want to do it now. You want to have, you know, you could have a multi-phase uh, project uh, first or a first phase. It concentrates on new landscaping to improve access to the house without steps. You might... Um, you know, you might decide to double the size of the bathrooms in case you have to add a wheelchair at some other place or make the hall or the halls wide. I mean, that was something I did do in my house from the very get-go. All the halls are really, really wide, so that was good. You may have to have a roll-in shower stall or make something uh, big enough to allow for a built-in bench in case, you know, in later years you need a caregiver. Uh, sometimes a wall-hung toilet uh, is a bit easier than a regular toilet. You may have to uh, widen doors and thresholds. Uh, just as I said, you'd have to widen halls. I mean, I think that is uh, a thing that is important. And, of course, all of these things will bring a uh, price tag. But consider this. One-third of your life is probably going to be in retirement. So it's less expensive to alter your home now or in, in you know, small projects if you're going to stay in it to make it accessible and happy rather than having to move into assisted living, which, as we all know, has become incredibly, incredibly expensive. So whether you need to put on a little porch that's enclosed that you can sit outside and enjoy a little bit of, uh, you know, the uh, of fresh air. You start thinking about those things. You might need more grab bars. You might need handles on your doors instead of knobs because if you get arthritis in your hands. So you may want to, you know, look at people who are older and what things are affl- afflicting them now and how, how they are, um, how are they getting around and then think about what can you do for yourself. So just, uh, you can look up a little more information if you're interested in the age-friendly uh, NYC, that's kind of a, it's an interesting read. Just, um, just search for it and you will find it. And I just believe that we do all have to design for the long term because we never know how long you're going to use the space. And if it's well designed for specific uses, those uses could be universal today as the same as it is in 20 years or 30 years. So Look for the long term. Don't do it for today when you're redesigning, redecorating, looking for a house or building. Do it for now. Well, when we come back to work, we are going to quit complaining, and I'm going to show you how. I'm Cynthia Bryan. You're listening to Star Style, Be the Star You Are, and we will be back in a bit just after this break, so don't go away. The Star You Are. Be the star 
Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Business Bites. Here's Cynthia Bryan. Could it be possible that you have too many leads? Perhaps it's time for you to set up a qualification system to help you identify your most urgent prospects. Here is a simple system. Do a customer analysis. This means finding out which new leads closely resemble your current customers. Then create a model customer by taking into account demographics, geographics, and psychological factors. Talk to your people and your trade associations and ask if they have a composite of customers. Study other industry profiles and then match this to your profile. No use wasting time with leads that won't lead to anything. Use your time wisely to qualify your leads and maximize your profits. Remember, you are the star of your own performance. Turn your passions into profits. I'm Cynthia Bryan with another business bite from Star Style. For more information, visit CynthiaBryan.com or to book a consultation, call 925-377-STAR. That's 925-377-STAR. Be the star you are. The star you are. The annual cost of illiteracy to American taxpayers is over $225 billion. Help increase literacy, reduce violence, and improve positive media messages by making a tax-deductible contribution to Be The Star You Are charity. A top-rated nonprofit, Be The Star You Are promotes positive role models, produces positive radio broadcasts, and donates positive books to empower women, families, and youth. Be a power partner and join our galaxy of stars. Visit our website at bethestarur.org to make a tax-deductible donation using PayPal or send checks to P.O. Box 376, 376, Moraga, California, 94556. Bethestarur.org. Dare to care. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. It's power time on Star Style. Be the star you are with your passion, purpose, and possibility producer, Cynthia Bryan. Now, back to the power party. This business of show business is calling out to me. Are you a complainer? I call them blabers and complainers. Well, if so, it's time to quit complaining because if you're griping like crazy, you are driving yourself crazy and you are driving everyone else crazy. And I'm going to help you uh, with a very short plan that will get you thinking positive as soon as possible. You are listening to Star Style, Be the Star You Are. My name is Cynthia Bryan. And I'm coming to you live on the Voice America Network. And we're with you every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. So we're happy that you are here with us right now and that you are um, deciding to tune in and perhaps learn as much as possible. So why does it matter if you are a complainer all the time? Everyone needs to vent once in a while. There's absolutely no, nothing wrong with that. But being a compulsive you know, complainer can hurt your mood and sends people running. Now, on the flip side, 
if you complain strategically and in moderation, it might have a, a positive effect in bringing about desired outcomes. Now, this is a plan that was developed by a doctor, uh, Robin Kowalski, um, from the uh, University of South Carolina, and it actually helps you to learn which woes matter and which don't, and how to speak up to achieve results. So the first, the first week, you want to really monitor yourself. And what does that mean? You start by figuring out how much you complain, as well as what tends to set you off. Now, how do you do that? I really suggest keeping a journal. So writing down how you are, what's happening to you, and, and how you are reacting to it. I think that's really, really important. The next step is to stay awake. Now, you, you might keep um, something on your wrist and, you know, switch it, switch the bracelet every time and every time you complain, just so you kind of know, but you really need to count how many times you're complaining, no matter what it is. That's really important. The next one is to mind your mood. And as I said, to write down every complaint. It's real, that's very critical, because if you don't write it down, it's, you're not going to remember. The person you expressed the complaint to, include that in your journal, and your mood before and after you talked about it. So you were angry, and then just by letting loose, maybe you got onto the right thing. Then read the patterns. When the weekends, scroll through your list. Did you curse every time your neighbor mowed the lawn at 6 a.m.? Was your work, you know, best friend? Um, was she your go-to listener? And when you had to, you know, something with your boss, um, what happened to her, you know? Spot common themes so you can tackle the underlying problems. I, I had a good example um, that I could give you from that with that 6 a.m. is I was just in Ocean Beach, which is very fun in San Diego area. And the little apartment we stayed in was quite lovely, except it was right underneath the airport's flying pattern where they take off. So literally, I, they started around 6 a.m. and it'd be every four minutes. And talk about wanting to complain. It was so loud, you know, it shook the place. There was no way that you could sleep or do anything or earplugs didn't help. So that would be one of my, that would definitely be on my list. The next thing is to pick your battles. There are two basic types of complaints. They are, there's the ones that are really expressive and they're cathartic. They let you get something off your chest and they could be instrumental, which help you find a resolution. But the other ones are just plain old whining. And the goal is to make fewer of the whining, right? Okay, sort it, sort it out. Separate your gripes from week one into the ones that are the whining and the ones that are um, really instrumental for your learning. And then rank the complaints in each pile in order of importance to gain a better idea of ideas of which comments keep trivial, uh, you know, are trivial to you right now. And again, tally your groans daily and aim to slash the number by a third every day. So that means biting your tongue when you reach the limit. So you really have to choose widely. And then, of course, you could just go cold turkey. And that would be at the week's end, you try to make it a full 24 hours without grouching at all. 
And if you need to vent, you just go to that journal I talked about and you um, you write it down. And if you, uh, something that could help you, you know, the buddy system, you could tell your friends uh, or your significant other or your partner or whoever you are with that if you start complaining that you want them to tell you to stop, okay? It's not unfair. And then... By, you know, by third week, you should be getting your way more because now you're ensuring the times that you do need to complain are really productive as possible. And when you complain effectively and you get a result, even if it's just lowering a late charge, there's something really empowering about it. So you want to, again, it's like, it's like choosing wisely. Have an end goal. Think of your ideal solution to the problem. If you can't come up with one, Again, back to that journal. And then choose your audience. Speak with the person who's most likely to help you fix any issue. If you're unhappy with a product, call customer service. Don't just complain to your spouse. And if you call customer service and you're not happy with the results, very nicely ask for a supervisor or ask for the retention division. You are more likely to get some help. And then you're going to feel better. And again, you don't want to complain. You want to set it aside and care, share, and be fair. And practice your dialogue. First, validate what other people may be feeling and politely explain the issue. And if you're frustrated, you know, that your husband or your boyfriend never gets gets up with the dog or, you know, never takes out the garbage, whatever it is, tell, tell them point blank. You know, I know that it might be tiring, but it would really help me if you would do the share of chores with me. And perhaps you just get to the point of writing down each other's chores and then just doing it and from then let it go. So don't be a blamer or a complainer. Just reframe and reframe your thought process and you're going to be a lot happier. Well, thank you so much for being great listeners and allowing us into your life every week right here on Voice America Network, the Empowerment Channel. You have been listening to Star Style. Be the star you are. And we are really thrilled to be your personal coaches and help you as best that we can. For more information about Be the Star You Are charity that brings you this show, go to bethestarur.org. And for more information about any coaching or Star Style Productions, please visit CynthiaBryan.com. And until next week when we celebrate again, remember that love always wins, smiles always prevail, and happiness will be the best, best remedy for any blaming and complaining. Be happy, go out into the world and make a difference. And remember to always be the star you are. And pick up a copy of the book, Be the Star You Are and Be the Star You Are for Teens with all proceeds benefiting Be the Star You Are charity. You can find them at bethestarur.org and also at starstyleradio.com. Until next Wednesday when we party and celebrate again, We hope that you have a fabulous week being the stars that you were born to be. Dream, create, and give back. I'm Cynthia Bryan thanking you and expressing for you to be the star 
you are. Be the star you are. The star you are. Be the star you are. You are the star. Be the star you are. It's been a pleasure bringing you our life-changing program, Star Style, Be the Star You Are. We have you on our radar as it's our goal to inspire, inform, entertain, and motivate you to be the star you were born to be. For more information, visit www.starstyleradio.com. And to make a donation to the charity, go to www.bethestarur.org. Ignite the flame that burns brightly within. Take charge of your life and coach yourself to success with our dynamic hosts, Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany, every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another serving of champagne for the spirit and a power boost to live with star style. Until we celebrate together next week, be the star you are. You are.